Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello. Happy New Year. Welcome in to our latest installment of the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand. And as always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery and Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff, because it is our New Year edition of the Legal Face-Off podcast. For the sixth straight year, we get to diagnose all the Illinois' new laws for 2023, and we welcome in our friend Amanda Vinicky, correspondent and host at WTTW. Amanda, great to see you as always. Thanks for being here. I am happy to be here, and happy New Year to all. Hope it is a safe, joyous, and fun one for everybody, despite or perhaps because of some of these new laws. Well, yeah, it wouldn't be a new year of podcast without uh, Amanda. So thanks again. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, there's a couple of fun new laws. I think there's 188 total, so we can't cover all of them. We're going to cover some of the highlights, but a couple uh, to start off that are a little more serious. And and, and the one that's got the most of attention, uh, Amanda, is, of course, the Safety Act. So to give our listeners some context, the Safety Act was supposed to go into effect January 1st. And the most controversial aspect of the Safety Act was the bail reform. Uh, Illinois would be the first um, state of the nation to end cash bail. Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a judge in Kankakee who ruled on behalf of the plaintiffs who happened to be prosecutors, state's attorneys in about 65 Illinois counties who... uh, moved to enjoin the enforcement of this bail reform because they felt that it was dangerous, that it would allow too many people to get out uh, on the streets. Well, fast forward, as you mentioned, to New Year's Eve, and the Supreme Court of Illinois issued a stay and said that because there was only some jurisdictions affected, because there was only some plaintiffs in this lawsuit, that would be too confusing, too muddy. So across the board, across the state of Illinois, we're going to put a stay on this and we're going to determine at some point, who knows when, the constitutionality of the reform uh, provision of the Safety Act. So with that background, where does that leave us? How quickly do you think the Supreme Court will rule on this and who are the different factions involved here? So I I hesitate to make any sure predictions about what the Illinois Supreme Court will do. They do a lot of that in private. I am not privy to any of those discussions, but they have said that they are going to plan to take this matter into consideration in an expeditious fashion. What that means, uh, your attorneys, <laughs> sometimes those wheels of justice turn pretty darn slow. But in this case, I would expect that this won't be one of these, you know, it won't be years, likely not even months. I mean, we're the, the Illinois Supreme Court is knows that this is a very serious matter. They surely have been following the legal arguments and all that has gone on in terms of both in court and outside of it regarding the Safety Act. Uh, we want to bear in mind that there is a new makeup to the Supreme Court. You have a couple of new justices there, and it is even more firmly in con- democratic control. Of course, justices will say, hey, we're, we're nonpartisan. But, but, but um, I I think that that is certainly going to be something that gets some matter of attention because it is a five to two court now. Um, The court said that they had to do this, as you noted, 
because it really just could have been, my words, not theirs, utter chaos to have some counties implementing these really big drastic changes to the criminal justice system while other counties did not do so. And in particular, you have places like consider some suburbs where they're in various counties. So how would that be to determine? How would you figure out what happens pre-trial when somebody is arrested for a criminal act and a judge has to determine what happens? Do they stay in jail? Are they to be released? And under what conditions? Under the conditions of the Safety Act or under the ones that have long in, been in place that do afford some sort of monetary bail uh, option? So it, it is uh, very contentious. Still, the controversy isn't going to go away. And even when we do get a ruling from the Illinois Supreme Court uh, that does whatever it does, perhaps puts the Safety Act back into play, look for it to remain controversial. So Amanda, some less controversial aspects to the new laws that have come into effect in Illinois. Tell us about the minimum wage increase, um, as well as the Family Bereavement Leave Act. Okay, so the minimum wage increase, maybe not of huge significance, for example, to those who live or work in the city of Chicago, because it's already higher than what the statewide minimum wage will be. But this is a big deal um, for particularly businesses and individuals, maybe outside of those the jurisdictions like Chicago. It is now going to be $13 an hour. And by the way, it goes up. Easy to remember, goes up by a buck every year, and it's tied with the year that it is. So $14 in 2024 and then $15 in 2025. That is for anybody except for those who are under the age of 18 and working a job part-time. They can make less. And then also the tipped wage is still uh, a thing. So I believe it's $7.80 if you are uh, working a job that still relies on tips. Although those tips are supposed to bring you to, at minimum, the minimum wage. Um, then you go to the Family Bereavement Act. This is something that I think has gotten um, a lot of attention, in particular, when you look to uh, the coronavirus and it, there's been the sort of reckoning and recognition of what needs to happen, both in giving folks time off for when they're ill um, and then when, unfortunately, things go wrong. Uh, the, in particular, some of the changes to law now recognize that when you, for example, um, if somebody miscarries or has an unsuccessful IVF treatment, that that is something that can be uh, can, that that is a great loss. That is something that is is grievous and uh, would it take and require in those cases the ability to need to take time off from going to work and going about life as if nothing happened. It is the, the loss of a child. Uh, that is something that, by the way, when you speak with the business community, not that they fought this, but that they say, recognize you have the minimum wage, you have inflation, a lot of other costs. This is one that maybe is not as obvious, but when you have employees not able to, not coming to work, that that is incorporated as something that hits their bottom line. And a lot of the laws deal with education. Uh, they always, uh, the last couple of years, they seem to have uh, focused on education. And this year is no different. Among the ones that are notable are uh, some training on how to uh, avail yourself of some benefits on your way to college. Another one is um, allowing students to participate in a civic event and miss school for that perhaps in the wake of a lot of the um, civil demonstrations we've seen over the last couple of years. And then another one treats uh, folks with high school equivalency certificates. Those will be now considered degrees rather than certificates, maybe taking some of the stigma out of that. 
Yeah, exactly. That That's the prerogative that maybe somebody has a difficult time getting a job or is viewed by an employer as not having received a full education when it is a certificate. So now I believe you'll, you'll, you'll get a diploma from Illinois State High School, which isn't uh, an actual physical institution that somebody has attended, but is a diploma from the state of Illinois. Tell us about the Crown Act, Amanda, and what that does. So the, the Crown Act, this is something that you had um, folks attempting to push on the federal level, and Congress did not, in fact, succeed in getting that accomplished. As we are talking, of course, there's turnover in D.C., uh, but this does, and Illinois has previously taken action when it came to what was going on in schools, when individuals had hairstyles that may um, have been considered outside the norm, and now folks are saying, hey, wait a second, who decides what the norm is, what is a quote-unquote acceptable, appropriate hairstyle. This is one that says there are, recognizes that particularly for in um, certain ethnicities and backgrounds that you're going to have a different types of hairstyles, be it braids, be it locks, whatever it may be best for a hair type or culturally significant and appropriate, that it is just that work appropriate, normal, acceptable, and it has to be considered as such. Previously in Illinois law, it made sure that schools recognized it as such. Now this is bringing that into really sort of Illinois' um, you know, human rights and biases and saying that you cannot discriminate against an employee, an individual because of an ethnic hairstyle. Amanda, finally, some of the most important and relevant uh, laws to us all, there is now Finally, a official Illinois serpent. I mean, where, how have we lived all these years without an official Illinois snake? There's also an official um, uh, rock and also a uh, sweet corn appreciation day. Tell us about these incredibly important pieces of legislation. Finally, I know I, you're right. I'm not sure how Illinois was able to manage without all of these things. And I, I do have to wonder, I feel like every year there's some sort of superlative that is added. And when, when we're going to run out, we have a, a state. I'm not sure if my memory serves, if it's an official state pie or an official state dessert. Um, we, we have official state snack already. That is popcorn. I've got to be careful when I talk about Illinois' new official snake because um, it is the Eastern milk snake. And I keep on wanting to say milkshake. <laughs> don't eat this. I'll be honest. I, I don't uh, I don't know much about it, but um, it is not a poisonous snake. The dollar stone is the official state rock. And actually, one of my colleagues at WTCW Chicago tonight, um, Patty Wetley, did a deep dive into the dollar stone. So if you're really interested in learning about more, check out her piece on that. And Sweet Court Appreciation Day, well, it comes at the, the height of summer when I don't know how you can help but not appreciate a delicious ear of sweet corn. Of course, Illinois, a huge producer of that. Although I think really the bulk of our corn is, is, goes to feed for animal and livestock. It's There's some of it that's that brilliant, delicious corn that you know you can strip off the cob and you perhaps do so. I don't have my notes in front of me, but I think it's August 1st is officially Sweet Corn Appreciation Day in 2023 and every year on out. So happy celebrating. Well, the milk snake actually, it was, I, I looked it up, is, is named that way. It's a constrictor, right? So it constricts its prey by to kill them. And the people who named it early on named it a milk snake, Joe, because they thought that this snake could actually milk a cow. <laughs> 
And who's doing those studies to see if indeed yeah. this snake can milk a cow? I, I, that's what I want to know. I also guinea pig that gets to see if a snake can milk a pig, uh, milk a cow, I should say. I'm also milking a pig. You'd be really amazing. Yeah. <laughs> We've got, uh, we definitely have a meet the parents joke in here somewhere about you can milk anything with. <laughs> um, you know, anyway. I can't let Amanda go without asking you this very important pressing question. Do you eat your corn? You know, do you nibble it by holding both hands or do you strip it like you mentioned? I, I mean, it kind of depends on where I'm at. If I'm at like a fair somewhere, I like to have a handle. And mm-hmm. so I'll just use the, the strip down. But normally I eat it like any good Illinoisan. And I, of course, have cute little corn cob sticker things that are in the shape of corn that I put on the ends. And so I can go round and round. Obviously. That's the right answer. Don't, <laughs> don't trust anyone who cuts their corn with a fork and knife. Agreed. What is the fun in that? <laughs> I happen to enjoy the taste a little bit more when it's cut off. Oh, no. Joe. <laughs> Joe also puts ketchup on his hot dogs. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> we're all out of time, but Amanda, thanks as always for this yearly edition of all the Illinois new laws. Again, that's Amanda Vinicky of WDTW. Thanks again for all the insight. An annual tradition I look forward to. Happy 2023. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 to present and Leading Lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Moving along on the Legal Faceoff podcast, let's get to the roller coaster of events involving FTX. We bring in Justin Danilevitz, partner of Saul Ewing and one of America's leading lawyers of litigation, according to Chambers USA. Justin, thanks you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Justin, you're a former federal prosecutor. You've prosecuted uh, and now defended all sorts of crimes like this. Talk to us about how difficult it will be to prove intent. That's a key uh, part of the challenge facing prosecutors in uh, prosecuting Sam Bankman-Fried. How hard will it be to prove intent in this case? So intent is the $64,000 question in any white-collar criminal case, Rich. I should clarify that. There are a few sort of unusual kinds of federal crimes uh, that are strict liability crimes, meaning intent is not an issue. But in general, uh, intent is the heart of the game, and it certainly is here uh, where you're dealing with these kinds of conspiracy charges uh, and substantive charges against Sam Bankman-Fried and others. Um, so intent is crucial. 
Um, I like to say that when it comes to white collar crime, it's the thought that counts. Uh, and so, you know, the, the government is going to be uh, intently focused, as they have been throughout, uh, on what was in the defendant's, defendant's mind. Um, I got to tell you, though, from everything I've seen and heard, uh, this is shaping up to be a pretty strong case. Uh, I think that you can see that from the different sources of evidence that are already in the public domain, the early guilty pleas by two co-conspirators. Um, I think that uh, SBF and his counsel have their work cut out for them. So speaking of uh, some of the evidence that's now in the public domain, SBF has not really helped himself, has he, uh, in the weeks since his, um, since this has all happened. He has uh, blamed FTX's collapse on messy accounting. He's expressed regret at his decision to declare bankruptcy. He's used even profanity in describing regulators. Um, SEC lawyers have referenced his conduct as incessant and disruptive tweeting. How do you think his actions will affect his defense? Uh, they're, they're certainly not going to help. Um, there's an old saying that I'm sure you've heard of, Rich, which is that um, a lawyer who represents himself or herself uh, has a fool for a client, right? And I think the, the reverse is equally true. A client who tries to represent him or herself in the court of public opinion has a fool for a lawyer. Uh, the statements that he's made, the admissions that he's made, um, are incredibly problematic, but they could get a lot worse because um, what a prosecutor likes almost as much as an admission is a false exculpatory statement, right? So if he says, wasn't aware of X, Y, and Z, uh, and yet his, his chats and internal emails later reflect that he was aware of X, Y, and Z, that's, that's going to be pretty damning evidence. So um, there is a class action lawsuit filed in Florida against Tom Brady, uh, Giselle Bunchen, Larry David, uh, many other celebrities who endorse FTX. SBF is also a defendant. What exposure do you think these defendants, these celebrities in particular, have for endorsing this product? So the, the SEC is on record for, gosh, it's uh, around five years at this point. Uh, about the risks of touting um, securities uh, and failing to disclose the, uh, the source of, of payment to the person endorsing a security. Give you a quick example. Kim Kardashian uh, just weeks ago got herself in trouble for endorsing another digital asset, Ethereum MX. Uh, she failed to disclose in her Instagram post that she was paid $250,000. And that turned out to be a pretty bad investment for Kardashian. She had to pay over a million uh, in, in terms of disgorgement and fines. So uh, there's no question that, that all of these individuals do face some exposure from the SEC. As you point out, they're also defendants in this private civil suit. So this is not something to be taken lightly. Um, Celebrities should be on notice that they, you know, uh, at their peril, endorse these kinds of digital assets without disclosing the source of payments to them. So as a former federal prosecutor, sort of take us inside the room, the war room, so to speak, uh, in any prosecution, obviously, of a high profile individual like SBF, uh, there are going to be challenges um, in bringing a successful prosecution. In this case, uh, however, 
it's particularly difficult, I would imagine, given a couple of things, the the the, the sheer volume of data, the sheer volume of, of evidence that they have to comb through uh, to prosecute SPF. And also, importantly, the fact that this involves a relatively new type of uh, alleged fraud crypto is, is is very difficult to follow uh, even for the most experienced regulators experienced prosecutors so talk to us what some of the challenges in putting this together especially when faced with a high net worth uh very uh wealthy although that is questionable now how much money he has left for his defense but you know he put up a 250 million dollar bail today although he asked the court to seal uh who signed off on that but Let's assume he has very deep pockets and he'll have great lawyers who won't have the same challenges as the other side will. Talk to us about some of the obstacles there. Sure. Uh, so there's, there's a whole bunch to unpack in that question. Uh, all really good points. I would say that, yes, there is uh, mountains of data that they will have to pour through, both the defense and the prosecution. And as a general rule, simpl simplicity favors um, the advocate, right? I think, as you probably know from your experience too, complexity is the enemy, uh, simplicity is the friend. And so, although it's true that this is kind of a new medium uh, in which to perpetrate a fraud and digital assets and, and blockchain can become quite complex, it's the role of the prosecution to really point out that this is uh, basically old wine in new bottles, there's nothing particularly novel about the nature of the fraud, at least as it's been alleged. The idea is that they made sort, you know, representations to both investors and customers. What they said was untrue. And it's as simple as that. I think the government will say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if it even gets that far, Rich, and we have to see, uh, this is an old, uh, old scheme. It's a matter of lying and cheating and stealing. Uh, and everything else is is kind of, um, you know, theatrics and uh, kind of irrelevant. Um, so I think I think that's certainly going to be uh, an, an aspect that the prosecution will focus on. They will try to simplify. Um, at the same time, there's no question in modern criminal cases, there is a, an absolute deluge of information. And so part of the, the skill, frankly, I think that you'll see is the, the, the efforts and the experience of these people to, to boil it down uh, and to be in a constant process of boiling down and simplifying. Last question here on legal face-off. Um, as a former federal prosecutor, how important is it to go after high-profile defendants like this? Not just because they're high-profile, of course, but when you have when you think you have enough to secure a conviction, why is it particularly important for prosecutors to reel in the big fish like Sam Bankman-Fried? So it's important for a number of reasons. For one thing, perception counts for a lot. And it's important that the public is aware that the government is going after not just uh, street drug dealers, uh, guys and, and ladies standing on the corner committing uh, street crimes, but, but higher level, more complex uh, crimes as well, like, like these kinds of frauds. It's also a reason um, and, and, and important um, to, to sort of further general deterrence. It's important as a general matter for sophisticated people in society to know that the government is watching. Uh, and I think that's very much a part of the plan on the part of the U.S. Attorney's Office now 
is to convey that people should look out, including, by the way, people not yet charged in this case. They've hinted very strongly that there is more to come, and I believe them. Again, that's Justin Danilevitz, partner of Saul Ewing. Justin, thank you very much for the insight today. Thank you, guys. My pleasure. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast. Lately, it's been taking longer to hear Supreme Court cases. Here to comment on that is Adam Feldman, a Supreme Court scholar and creator of the Empirical SCOTUS blog. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate you having me. Thanks. Adam, as Joe mentioned, uh, one argument about whether a Colorado graphic artist can refuse to create wedding websites, a, store, uh, a case that got a lot of attention, uh, for same-sex couples. That one lasted two hours and 25 minutes. Another important case involving uh, elections that was scheduled for an hour and a half checked in at almost three hours. Why are arguments taking longer than ever? So I think this has to do with uh, the way that the arguments are, are set up now that the pandemic uh, has slowed down and the court is back in a live session. Uh, the type of uh, paradigm that the argument was running off of uh, during the pandemic was each justice speaking individually uh, to the attorney. Uh, that's gone back now to what it was like previously, where uh, attorneys uh, and justices speak uh, fluidly. And so there isn't just a turn taking at the beginning, but then each justice is given an individual turn to talk at the end. And I think a lot of the reason why the arguments have been going so long is that the chief isn't really cutting them off as he as he would before. So uh, he's letting uh, the individual justices speak at the end of each attorney's turn. And that's taking longer than it would normally take prior to the pandemic. So why do you think Chief Justice Roberts isn't cutting people off like he was pre-pandemic? Because clearly having arguments that go so much longer than they should and have historically gone, I would imagine that there are definitely some downsides to that. Yeah, a lot of people I've been uh, speaking with in the media and the press uh, have have found this uh, kind of disconcerting because they you know plan their schedules around the arguments, and if they go longer, then these uh, these have ramifications beyond just the arguments themselves. Now, I, I think this comes down to the Chief Justice. Uh, somewhat delegating more to the other justices, um, having some more equity in terms of talk time. Uh, another thing that's changed is since uh, the pandemic arguments, Justice Thomas has been a part of the arguments also, and he was quiet for so long. So that's just an added variable in there. Um, but I think it's it's really this dual level of argument where you have uh, going about regular time with the individual justices speaking uh, along with each other. But then this turn taking at the end is adding uh, adding time to the overall uh, arguments. And another factor that seems to be lengthening the arguments is the newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, seems to be more vocal than her predecessor, Stephen Breyer. I think I saw one uh, report that actually analyzed the number of words she uses versus the words he used. Uh, that also seems to be adding to this trend. Is that right? Yeah, this is something that I've been following since the beginning of the term because it's been so interesting. Uh, usually, justices, at least historically, have come in and been more deferential to their colleagues in terms of uh, talking. And, and uh, Justice Jackson's really usurped that time and used it uh, how uh, she wants to direct the arguments. 
So uh, we're seeing much lengthier talk times uh, and word counts with Justice Jackson than we had with uh, any of the Trump appointees to the Supreme Court. Uh, they were much more reticent to speak in their early years and uh, still to this day don't talk as much as uh, as Justice Jackson has in her first 27 arguments, the first three sittings of the Supreme Court. Um, so we're really seeing something with Justice Jackson that we've never seen uh, before with any recent justice, including Justice Breyer, who is known for his lengthy uh, orations at oral argument. Even he didn't reach uh, the word counts over a long uh, number of arguments that Justice Jackson has reached. So, Adam, let's talk about what impact you think the longer arguments are having, both positive and negative, on the decisions that are being reached. Well, so some of this is up in the air because uh, the court hasn't released any major decision, any decisions yet this term uh, on the merits. So we're, we're looking forward to seeing how this is going to play out, how Justice Jackson's decisions are going to play out. Um, you know, the court has uh, been taking more time with opinions, uh, writing them over time, and they've been getting lengthier. So presumably, we might see uh, longer opinions. We might see more separate opinions, so dissents and concurrences from the justices, as we've also seen that pick up over the last few years. So I think we'll see much of the same just in uh, kind of longer prose than we have in the past. Adam, uh, one report said that the average turnover period from argument to opinion was 122 days. Um the longest since 1946. At the same time, the number of argued cases, this term, 63, is among the lowest in its history. Again, this seems to be all part of the same trend that we're talking about. Um, what's the impact of this of this trend, do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting trend. And one thing that I followed, uh, this is actually going to be the longest time from the beginning of a term to the release of the first opinion in the court's history. So we've never had uh, the court go th the first three months without releasing one decision before. Um, so it's, it's, you know, slower than even uh, on average for the, a court that's been particularly slow at releasing opinions. So I think some of that just has to do with uh, the majority uh, opinion in each case taking longer to uh, see what the dissent and concurrences are going to say and having some kind of interaction between the two. And we've seen, you know, since the end of last term with all these six, three decisions where they've been the conservative justices and the majority and the liberal justices and dissent, these really fractured split decisions uh, tend to take a long time to resolve and for the justices to get all of their ideas and different theories of the cases. And oftentimes this leads to different fragmented decisions that don't exactly uh, go the same way as for one justice as it would for uh, their colleagues. Adam, what did you think of uh, Chief Justice Roberts' annual report that was released on New Year's Eve, and particularly its focus on security uh, across the federal court system? So this is an issue that's come up before, but probably not in recent memory uh, with uh, uh, with such a vigor, um, especially after the Dobbs decision and people protesting in front of the justices' houses uh, with one individual threatening Justice Kavanaugh's life. Um, it's 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 taken on a, a kind of momentum of its own. So you know, the, the chief justice didn't speak to the recent occurrences with any specificity, but these were definitely alluded to in the comments. Um, but 
you know, the, the connection was made, even though it was uh, as the justices prone, chief justices prone to do, focuses on history. It focused on the history and looking at security around Brown versus Board of Education and the integration of schools with the illusion, although not direct mention, of the safety and security of the justices in their current lives. Last question here on Legal Faceoff, Adam. Should a Supreme Court justice, a sitting justice, be attending a party with very partisan members of one party, as Brett Kavanaugh did purportedly over the holidays? The Supreme Court doesn't have a code of ethics like other courts. And I think this um, is important when we think about what the justices do with their own time. So one can make the argument that a justice should or shouldn't do something. But until there are rules in place which specify what they can and can't do, it really comes to a justice's own ethical guidelines. Um, And so I think we might see reform uh, about this in the years to come. But at this point, there's nothing that says a justice can't do that. So it really comes down to what they think is morally correct or incorrect. Again, that's Adam Feldman. You can find out more about his blog, Empirical SCOTUS, at EmpiricalScotus.com. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate you having me. Thanks. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio, our buddy Ellie Honig has a new book out, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. He's a senior legal analyst at CNN. Ellie, thank you so much for rejoining us here on Legal Faceoff. Joe, Rich, Christina, everyone, thanks for having me back. So I consider myself a part of this WGN crew. And as you, I think you know, I have family. My wife is from Chicago. She's a Bears fan, a Cubs fan, all that. But I have some news to break, which is that my son, who is a high school senior, is going next year, hold on, to the University of Chicago. So he will be, (laughs) there you go. I had to to show off the gear. So he will be out your way. So Rich, I'm going to hook him up with you guys. You can take him to a Bulls game or a Bears game. He's he's a Philly sports fan. Let me warn you, Uh, but he's a good kid. You had us still Philly. See, <laughs> the double the double doink is still resonating in my brain. So yeah, funny because well, listen, I don't, don't want to hear about the I don't want to hear about the double doink because I suffered through the fog bowl as a kid. That was painful. That's right. <laughs> you, you did fool us though, because it's the same logo. It's one of the rare yeah service for two teams. So yeah, exactly. But U of C, the Maroons. Let's go. <laughs> Congrats! Congrats! That's awesome. 
All right, we can talk my book now. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, getting down to business, Ali. As Joe mentioned, your new book, Untouchable, is coming out later this month. And in your book, you draw from your experiences as a federal, a former federal prosecutor, and discussing various powerful people, including former President Trump, Steve Bannon, Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, and Bill Cosby, among others. And you talk about how they've managed to dodge the justice system over the years. Tell us more about your book. Yeah, Christina. So the, the way this book came about, let me start with this. This is my second book with Harper Collins. And when I was done my first one, they said, well, what do you want to do next? I said, I don't really, I don't really know. My first book was about DOJ under Bill Barr. So I don't really have a great topic in mind. And they said, well, what do people ask you the most? And I said, oh, I can tell you that right now. It's how the hell does he get away with it? Now, the he can vary a bit. It's uh, always a he, <laughs> seemingly. But the most common person was Donald Trump. But you listed many of the others. Um, and I think anyone who follows our justice system know, has noticed that powerful people, famous people, rich people, celebrities tend to get off easier. Now, sometimes justice does come around, often belatedly, often only because there's media outcry, Jeffrey Epstein being one example, Harvey Weinstein being another. But if you go back, you will see the same patterns repeated over and over. And a lot of this really was consistent with my own experience as a state and federal prosecutor for 14 years. In fact, you know, people a lot of times say, well, Donald Trump, he did this. It's like a mob boss. It's like a mob boss. Um, all due respect, I know what actual mob bosses do. I prosecuted New York City mafioso. So I I was actually surprised at how many incidents and, and um, sort of crazy things that happened in my mob cases were paralleled in the tactics, not just of Donald Trump, but of other powerful players. So I wanted to bring it all together in this book. Like you said, I draw on sort of public reporting. I do my own reporting. I, I tell the story for the first time behind the scenes at DOJ and the Southern District in New York uh, of some very important decisions they made on some very big cases. And, and my own experience prosecuting mobsters really blended into that as well. So Ellie, is it is it the money? Is it the fame? Is it the uh, resources? Is it the power? I mean, what is it about these powerful men, mostly, as you mentioned, yeah. that continuously allows them to evade justice? So it's all of those things, but but also in maybe slightly different ways than people may realize. I really sort of put it at, at the convergence of three factors. One is we have systemic advantages uh, afforded to more powerful, more famous people. I'll give you an example. We prosecutors love to say we treat everyone without fear or favor, right? Without fear or favor. That's not really true. And as Exhibit A, I will give you the United States Department of Justice's own manual, which specifies that if a case is against a high profile person, if a case is likely to, to result in widespread media attention, it has to go up to higher and higher levels of review. And just as a simple matter of logic, the higher a case has to go, the more people who are there are who have to approve and, and cannot sign off. And I tell a story in my book about one case I had against a famous Major League Baseball player. I don't name him in the book. I'll tell you afterwards offline who was involved in a gambling ring. Um, and it was an ordinary gambling case, mob gambling case that ordinarily would have just been up to me. I wouldn't have had to run it by everybody. But because I had this famous celebrity involved, it went way, way, way up the chain. Um, so that's number one. We have these sort of systemic factors. Number two, smart, savvy bosses know how to game the system. And yes, it's the power. Yes, it's the money. Um, and it's in ways that you may not always realize 
Um, one of which I'll give you again, another example. Everyone knows that, that your powerful people are going to pay for the big money legal teams, the dream teams, right? From OJ on through, you know, Jeffrey Epstein had Alan Dershowitz and Kenneth Starr and all these heavy hitters. But one thing that really goes underappreciated is that real powerhouses pay for lawyers for the other people around them, for people who might flip against them in order to keep them quiet. And we just saw a perfect example of this with Cassidy Hutchinson, right? She was given a witness by Trump world that was paid for by Trump world. She didn't tell the full truth until she broke free of that lawyer and got herself a lawyer who was truly representing her interests. Only then did she fully come free. And I have similar experiences. And then finally, look, I, I put some blame on prosecutors. I think there are I examples of cases where prosecutors just utterly blew it, took too long, um, were too forgiving. I think the original handling of the Jeffrey Epstein case, the original handling of the Bill Cosby case are, are various examples of, of those phenomena. So when you were a former, when you were a federal prosecutor, you alluded to this in your, in your, in what you were just telling us, but what were some of the biggest challenges that you confronted when you were trying cases? And I know that you talk about some of these in your book, but it would be good to hear at least what some of these challenges were. Yeah. So look, I mean, a big one is if, if a person has money, they can take you to trial, right? If, if there's a big discrepancy in who has money and who doesn't, I mean, you know that certain defendants just don't have the money. And so it doesn't really impact you when the lawyer says, well, we'll see you at trial when you know they just can't afford it. And I talk about this in the book. People don't realize how expensive criminal defense lawyers are and ex how expensive. Very few people can afford to pay to go to trial. Um, so that's one factor. I mean, I, I tell a story about a case I did against a big New York firm that just bombarded us every night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., motions, that kind of thing. Um, look, jury, um, the humanity of juries weighs into this. And I talk about this in the book, too. We tend to see juries as these sort of monolithic soothsayers. But in fact, jurors are just human beings. And you know what? Jurors get scared. I had experiences in my mob cases where we had a juror, jurors try to bail out they're reluctant to return guilty verdicts if they think there might be retribution or if they think that the person might attack them publicly. And Donald Trump has done this. Donald Trump publicly attacked a juror in the Roger Stone trial. So jurors are very aware of that. They're told don't read the media. They all do. I mean, I'm pretty convinced of that. They're human beings, especially in the eight. You know, judges used to tell uh, jurors, if you see it on the news, change the channel. Now we're in the social media era. So I think we take a little bit of an overly idealized view of jurors. Um, so there are all manner of, of complications in any case, but but they're extenuated, uh, accentuated in a case involving a famous or powerful person. Ellie, yeah, last question here. I mean, you talked about um, intimidation of jurors and, you know, President Trump, former President Trump, has been accused of, of witness tampering. I mean, has yeah. there been a line that was previously, you know, not crossable now being crossed by our former president in literally in trying to intimidate witnesses who could lead to his conviction. It seems like once that's uh, no longer something that the rich and powerful are scared of, then anything goes. So there were a lot of lines uh, that Donald Trump crossed. And, and yes, he's actually quite masterful at managing, handling and intimidating potential witnesses against him. We saw that throughout his both of his impeachments. And we've seen that now. Um, there were examples. I mean, look, he took retribution. Remember Alexander Vindman? Remember Marie Yovanovitch, those witnesses from the Ukraine impeachment? He what did he do? He blasted them all publicly. And as soon as it was over, he fired them all. I mean, to me, that's textbook witness, at least retaliation. But nothing was ever done. And I do want to say in the book, you know, the big question that everyone has is, will Donald Trump get indicted? And in the book, my last couple chapters are about he might. I mean, we don't know. He might. But I, but I lay out in those last two chapters 
the various advantages he'll have, the various ways he will try to exploit them and maximize them based on his prior conduct. And I'm frankly critical of both DOJ and the Fulton County prosecutor for the way they've gone about their investigations. Um, the way I sort of summarize my, my criticism of DOJ is they could have gone for the jugular, but they got, but they went for every capillary instead. And Merrick Garland, we're about two years now from January 6th, not a single person in a position of power has been charged. Still might happen, but I argue in the book that the delay here, the timing is a real factor and is really going to harm their chances. And look, indictment's important, but it's the start of a case. It's not the end of a case. You still have to try the thing. And so I talk about my own trial experience and why I think prosecutors have painted themselves into a corner. Again, that's CNN's legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Again, his new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, is available. Ellie, thank you so much for the insight and congratulations to the new parent <laughs> of the University of Chicago Maroon. Thanks, guys. Time to move on to the legal grab bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Let's get to our guests. We start with Nigel Peary, personal injury lawyer out in Atlanta. Nigel, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. Along with Joe Patrice of AboveTheLaw.com, we'll also be talking about a few of his columns here on Legal Grab Bag. Joe, thanks for being here. Of course. Great to be here. Rich, let's get into it. Something we have hinted at earlier on in the show, and it's about Justice Brett Kavanaugh not holding back from holiday parties this season. Yeah, Brett Kavanaugh uh, attended a holiday party at the home of Matt Schlapp, who's chairman of the Conservative Political Action Committee, a very prominent uh, Republican, some would say a very right-wing Republican. And of course, that raised some eyebrows, Tina, about whether a sitting Supreme Court justice should be attending a party uh, at Christmas or any other time uh, involving people who are uh, affiliated with one party or the other. In addition to Matt Schlapp, there was Stephen Miller, who was a, uh, of course, a Trump almost cabinet member, close advisor to the former president, um, some other uh, members of the Trump uh, administration were there. Um, so as we know, and as we just talked about with one of our guests, there are no set protocols, set rules that Brett Kavanaugh violated in attending this party. But perception is everything, right? We've talked extensively on this show over the last couple of years about how some of the actions of Supreme Court justices, either in the way they've written decisions or their public statements, particularly in the wake of some decisions like Dobbs, have uh, been perceived uh, uh, in, in one way or the other. And I think this is a sign of maybe the uh, end of some uh, protocols involving Supreme Court justices. They seem a lot more emboldened lately to uh, you know, sort of come out and say how they feel. This is probably because of the great majority they enjoy on the Republican side, conservative side, at the, at the Supreme Court. Uh, there seems to be little repercussion for acting this way. Um, but what are your thoughts on it, Tina? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I think it's a bad thing. I mean, I think that, you know, when I say that, I would apply my comments, whether it's a conservative justice or a liberal justice. I think when you're a Supreme Court justice, you are on the highest court of this country and you are, in my humble opinion, held to a higher standard than others are. And I do think there should be rules because, as you said, Rich, you know, you know, the appearance of this is everything, in my opinion. And I think why and I think there's a dichotomy here between what we think the rules should be and what the rules actually are. And in, I believe that there should be rules that these sorts of activities are not partaken in. 
personally. So uh, Stephen Miller, who I mentioned, has a political uh, uh, action committee called America First Legal Federation, uh, Foundation. It has cases pending before the very court that Stephen Kavanaugh is sitting on. This, again, seems to be uh, uh, an ethical risk, again, perception-wise at the very least, but perhaps an actual conflict of interest. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think that's the bigger issue, whether or not he's hanging out with other right wingers. It doesn't bother me as much as talking to somebody who has business before the court at the time, uh, because these sort of ex party conversations. Some people are shrug and say, oh, well, people, you know, they run in the same circles in D.C. The problem with that, of course, is when you run into somebody at the local bar association, there are ears that can point out if something untoward is happening when you're in a meeting with somebody in a room full of like-minded individuals, you know, there's there's fewer people who are going to snitch on something being unethical. Now, as you said, the Supreme Court means never having to say you're sorry, but, you know, it really is a perception problem. And somebody with business is raises it to a whole other level than just hanging out with right-wingers. Yeah, Nigel, the flip side, as Joe referenced, is uh, Brett Kavanaugh, before he was on the Supreme Court, you know, worked in these circles for many, many years, even before he was a judge. Uh, it seems natural that the people with whom he'd be friends and who he would be attending a Christmas party with are of a certain political bent. I would be shocked if he was hanging out uh, with, you know, members of the ACLU or at the ACLU Christmas party. So, um, you know, there is the fine line there as well. No, I think it's it's difficult. It can become a fine line for someone like him because he, like you said, he was friends with all these people before, right? So he probably went to events with them before. So that line now that he's been appointed to the court, does he say no to all those invitations? Right? It's like, hey, man, we're still we're still friends. It's still people that you're going to be texting and talking to every single day, right? But I think that when you take that higher court, public perception should come ahead of some of your own personal preferences or, you know, wanting to be with your buddies, especially somewhere where you might be photographed and people would see you just because of how it might look. Rich, our next topic is something we've covered in the past, but not quite for some time, though. But it looks like another person has come forward with the Bill Cosby sexual abuse allegation. So it's interesting. We just talked to Ellie Honig uh, about the rich and powerful, particularly men continuing to get off. Um, and this is perhaps an example. So we know that Bill Cosby is now a free man. In fact, he's planning a comedy tour because his conviction for which he served actually a few years in jail in Pennsylvania was ultimately thrown away because of what some would say was the technicality, Tina. Um, it was actually a pretty you know relevant piece of law where uh, the former prosecutor promised him something and the next prosecutor sort of threw out that deal. But anyway, Bill Cosby is now a free man. Um but this new allegation is similar to many of the others. You know, uh, Bill Cosby has an M.O. that's been established in court, a modus, modus operandi, which is that he drugs women. Uh, he promises them uh, opportunities uh, in his uh, on his TV show and otherwise. And he drugs them and he rapes them. He sexually assaults and rapes them. That's his now established modus operandi. And the interesting part about this legally, again, we saw that. That's how he was convicted in Pennsylvania, right? The court allowed, the judge allowed in that case, this MO uh, defense uh, theory to come in, meaning that uh, other witnesses, even if these victims' crimes, the crimes against these victims were barred by the statute of limitations, as many of them were in Pennsylvania, their testimony was allowed in by that judge. 
because it established this habit, this pattern of behavior, this MO that Bill Cosby engaged in. Similarly, in this case, the allegation by Stacey Pinkerton is that this was part of his MO, that Bill Cosby uh, had an established habit of drugging and raping women. Um, so we'll see how this one plays out um, with uh, Bill Co Cosby again, who's now a free man. He may not be a free man and he may not be able to do that tour. I guess that remains to be seen. Yeah, Nigel, what are your thoughts on uh, on, on more Cosby lawsuits? I don't think he's going to be free for very long. You know, I think the, the statute of limitations law in New York that created the avenue for this lawsuit to come forward. It's it's just more of the same. You know, I think he should he should be in jail, in my opinion. And again, to be clear, uh, this is a civil lawsuit that's been filed, not a criminal complaint. Um, but uh, but Joe, what are your thoughts on the continued news involving Bill Cosby? Yeah, I mean, the, as a as a civil complaint, one of the things that I thought was interesting about it is it adds NBC and the production company who did the Cosby show to it, uh, alleging negligence uh, that uh, on the one hand, that's probably the deepest, deeper pockets. Uh, on the other hand, it that was what really struck me about it, because I think as we've we've all kind of agree, we've we've well worn whether or not Cosby had this modus operandi and did these things. Uh but what is interesting to me is the addition of saying that the company was negligent in keeping him around. I'm not altogether sure that you can say that the that NBC, unless they had actual knowledge this was going on, really have a legal duty here. Uh, but it's an interesting theory. It's a really interesting theory, also, Joe. In, in much more now than it was when the cause when when this you know incident allegedly occurred, and when his whole. Um, you know, series of infractions and sexual assaults occur because, you know, now I think production companies and companies like NBC are obviously much more cognizant of this kind of behavior. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they can be charged now with negligence a lot easier than they would be back then because of the Me Too movement, because it's out there in the open. So I agree with you. That's, you know, an interesting legal theory. I'm not sure that it'll be successful in this case, but certainly that's the theory going forward for a lot of these lawsuits. Let's get to our next topic. And Tina, it includes a big law firm filing suit against a former CEO of a big company. Yeah, Joe. So last week, news broke that the law firm Proskauer filed a lawsuit in the Southern District of New York against its now former COO, Jonathan O'Brien, who had been the COO of Proskauer for about five years and was fired once um, the news broke that he'd allegedly stolen 34 gigabytes of internal data and had made two large downloads of data to an external hard drive um, before he had actually resigned. The data downloaded allegedly includes information such as client data, firm financials, strategic planning documents, um, compensation models for the workforce, including partners, as well as proprietary software. Um, as those of us who work for law firms and other businesses know, this type of information is highly confidential, and it can take years for a firm to develop and refine, for example, its compensation models. And providing visibility into how a firm compensates its partners, for example, can give an edge to competitors particularly if they are trying to um, recruit away some of those partners. Um, the, co the complaint alleges that O'Brien took the information knowing that it would be highly useful to his future employer 
um, as well as Proskauer's competitors. Um, O'Brien, when he resigned, did not disclose um, who his future employer is. And he reportedly said that the Proskauer leadership would be very upset when they heard where he is headed. Late last week, Proskauer successfully obtained a TRO requiring O'Brien to return all of the trade secrets he allegedly stole. Um, he's required to return all files um, later this week. He apparently, in a strangely timed vacation, is in Mauritius right now and is scheduled to return to the States on January 5th. The TRO, the TRO also applies to anyone who is acting alongside him. So purportedly, to the extent that he has shared any of this information with his future employer or anybody else, the TRO applies to them as well. So, Rich, I find this case really interesting. I haven't seen trade secrets law really applied in this context necessarily, but I do think that this is something we're going to be seeing more of. Um, it, it just seems some of these allegations are pretty outrageous about the amount of information and files he downloaded to an external hard drive. In this day and age, it's pretty easy for an IT group to be able to detect this sort of thing. So. Um, very interesting case. Yeah, not only because of that, but as you mentioned, because, you know, the allegations that this rose to the level of criminal conduct, you don't see that uh, too often involving law firms, even when there are, you know, even when individuals are accused of stealing data. But Joe, you know, I think it speaks to in this day and age where, you know, early on in 2023, and we're all very keen to the idea of hacks and cybersecurity, yet this still allegedly went on at a huge law firm, a top 50 law firm. How they didn't secure their data enough to prevent this from happening is a little bit shocking. I mean, yeah, then, well, on, that's shocking. But I also, my takeaway was the this got caught because the company has a, the firm has a policy of doing a 30 day look back when somebody announces they're leaving, they look back 30 days to see if anything fishy happened. Uh, and he did all this within 30 days, which I mean, first lesson of committing crimes is not to do that. But thankfully, criminals are stupid. Uh, in this instance, though, he did this within that window. That's how they found it. So in some ways, it was a good story about IT departments being on top of things and being able to figure out where fraud was. Uh, there was another corollary to this also, which was he was also accused of trying to delete a bunch of emails that were part of a litigation hold. Uh, that also was something he was unable to do, which is, I think, a testament to how law firms have gotten a lot more savvy about making sure, and, and companies, internal legal departments too, a lot more savvy about bringing on tech solutions that prevent individual users from messing with litigation holds and getting rid of evidence that needs to be preserved. Tina and Joe, also, we, we just heard from one of our guests who said that... Uh... You know, the old saying that a lawyer who handles their own case has a fool for a client. It's interesting that Procare that Pro filed this suit on their own. They filed a pro se. Uh, anyone find that interesting? I mean, obviously, they are equipped to bring this kind of lawsuit. On the other hand, it would seem like it would be a good idea to farm that out to, to another law firm. Trying to save money, perhaps? I mean... Um, I'm wondering, you know, that may be part of it. It may also be that they wanted to move so quickly that there's nothing like calling on one of your own partners, like just sort of walking down the hall and getting one of them to help you with this. And also, 
Um, you know, given the nature of what the allegations are here, you know, the trade secrets are known to the firm and its partners purportedly. So that might be another reason to have one of your own um, step in. And they're very capable lawyers. Yeah, we'll see if they get some other counsel after the TRO. Like TRO was a quick moving issue. It's, if it goes on longer, they might go outside. You know, we're past the Christmas holiday, but the story kind of reminded me a little bit of the movie Christmas Vacation because it involves a company at first denying end of the year bonuses and then after a little drama, reincorporating it. So, yeah, as so, everybody, so as everybody knows, associates and law firms look forward to year-end bonus announcements like little kids look forward to Santa and Christmas. Um, there was plenty of year-end drama, as there often is with a number of firms and their last-minute year-end bonus news. Um, Sherman and Sterling was actually one of the firms that announced it was going to match the market bonus scale, which is often driven by New York firms like Cravath. Um, but that decision and that announcement came attached with a new and previously unannounced hours requirement, which did not win any popularity contests for those who are at Sherman. Another firm, Foley Hoag, said that it matched also but that the match only applies to associates who exceeded their 1,850 billable hour requirement and um, come in at at least 2,000 billable hours. And that was also being applied retroactively. Originally, that Foley announcement was that those who come in at the old requirement would get 70% of the bonus. Two days later, Foley pivoted quickly and made another announcement saying that based on information that associates had brought to the firm's attention, which we all know is associates complaining and pointing to an old bonus memo. They said that they were going to then reinstate the bonus structure from last year so that associates who billed 1850 would get 100% of their bonus and those billing between 1700 and 1850 would get 70%. The money we're talking about here, just for those of our listeners who are not part of the law firm dynamic. Um, the money here is nothing to sneeze at. The market bonuses range anywhere from 15000 for brand new associates to $125,000, maybe more for, for folks who are a little bit further in their career, such as senior associates and counsel. Um, there's been a lot of speculation that the bonus shenanigans, as they've been called for 2022, is due to the market slowdown that impacted a lot of firms, particularly since the summer. Some say that some of these decisions are not being applied across firms so that associates who happen to be in groups that have remained busy notwithstanding the slowdown end up getting normal bonuses, whereas the associates who are in slower practice groups are the ones that may be at risk. So, Rich, I remember when I was a, an associate way back in the day at what is now DLA Piper, and I remember that our ability to enjoy the holiday and New Year really rode on these decisions about who was getting bonuses and how much. So I can't say that I don't understand it, but it just seems like, you know, the money is getting crazier and crazier. And Folks that may not even be performing the way they should be are looking for bonuses when it's like, you know what, bonuses for above and beyond, at least, you know, that's how I was raised. 
Yeah, the whole concept of bonus like being guaranteed um, kind of like defies logic. It, it it's inherently you know something over and above. But putting that aside, I gotta get this is Joe's story. You broke it for above the law. I just gotta ask. You know, you get access to these memos. I love reading the actual memos from law firms. And you gotta think, how stupid are these firms? for putting it in writing and then changing their mind. I love the fact the, the quote in one of the uh, memos was, oh, just kidding. Basically, we love you all. You did a great job. Here's the money back. We're Now we're listening to you. Why did they just listen to them in the first place rather than <sighs> do it this way? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I wanted to just going back to the intro here, uh, the because Joe raised the Christmas vacation corollary. And I think that's an important one when it comes <laughs> to these big law firms, because in Christmas vacation, as we all remember, Clark doesn't get his bonus. And one of the lines he has in that that I always that always stuck with me is he says, if you want to cut out bonuses, fine. But when people count on them as part of their salary, you know, you can't do that. And that's that's really what goes on with big law. Uh, it, whereas bonuses can be just a nice thing in a lot of industries. In big law, it's it's factored in. Uh, people are making decisions based on paying off their loans and stuff like that, based on the idea this is going to happen. So when the rug gets pulled out at the end, it, it is a real problem for folks. Uh, good of on Foley for recognizing that this was a problem, and by recognizing, I think he was right they, because the <laughs> because the associates complained. Uh, but Sherman, yeah, they. Uh, when we get these memos, uh, and now Sherman didn't necessarily put out a memo because they were kind of smart and decided to do this somewhat on the sly. Uh, they are being caught because people understand that if they, if enough people are being treated that way, you know, it doesn't stay quiet for long. Joe, I got to ask before we get to Nigel on this, like what, what's the most memorable memo leaked that you've had in your career? You've got some great leaks over the years. Oh. I love your column. But you guys get all the inside memos. And how exciting is it when you get one of those like smoking gun memos? It must be must be fun. It, it is. And it, it and that's one of those memos are the best. Uh, obviously, you know, a story like Sherman, where you're trying to chase down individual tipsters is always difficult. And you take things with grains of salt and so on. But when you've got a memo uh, like as all lawyers love the four corners of the document, you just look at this and this thing speaks for itself. I uh, like all the legal uh, maxims come to play. And you're like, I can't believe that somebody actually wrote this. I don't think bonuses have ever been my favorite memos, but there have been some scandal ones where I just stare in disbelief that a law firm thought this is a good idea to write down. Yeah. Uh, think before you hit print. Uh, Nigel, you, before you were a very successful plaintiff's personal injury attorney, you worked as a defense lawyer. So presumably you had uh, an hour's bonus at some point or an hour's requirement at some point in your life. Um, you know, I think we can all sympathize with the idea of being promised one thing. And then at the last minute, especially during the holidays, your compensation structure being changed. I think the thing that really stood out to me in that story was that the when they were told they wouldn't get the bonuses, it was phone calls. Right. Whereas the memo was something that they could hold. Then they're telling you via the phone. So it's like they're still smart enough to cover themselves as lawyers. Right. And then. It just there's nothing you can really fit, do about it. But I've been there before. I mean, we all lived through COVID. I've been in a firm where we had our salaries got cut down, you know, because of slowdowns. Um, it wasn't a fun time, you know, but it's one of those things that we try to just fight through. But the bonuses, if you're tying like a vacation or you got some bills or you made some promises to your kids, man, those those can be some heartbreaking times. Here's my advice to any associate or any partner who receives bonuses who are listening or watching the show. Um, very simple. Uh, thank you. Two words when you receive a bonus that um, I don't hear very often as someone who writes those bonus checks. That's very simple. How about a, just an, a thank you? It doesn't have to be long. doesn't have to be involved, but thank you for whatever the bonus was. 
Tina, how far technology has come where now facial recognition is ousting mothers out of a rocket show? Yeah, Joe, the answer is it's come pretty far. Um, there was a New Jersey mom who was trying to take her daughter to see a rocket show the weekend after Thanksgiving as part of a Girl Scouts field trip. And she was kicked out of Radio City Music Hall during that show because she was identified by facial recognition technology as a lawyer at a law firm that had sued a restaurant that was owned by the owner of Radio City, the Madison Square Garden Entertainment Corporation. So that lawyer, Kelly Conlon, is an associate at the firm Davis, Saperstein and Salomon in New Jersey and claims that a security guard stopped her in the Radio City lobby. Um, she said it was pretty scary, actually, that they knew who she was, they knew her name, they knew her firm's name, and told her that she was not allowed to be there. They allowed her daughter to stay for the show while she waited outside for her daughter. She claims that she has nothing to do with these cases and that she doesn't even practice in New York and that her only tie to them is being at the firm that is handling these cases. The owner of Radio City said it's pretty straightforward and cut and dry. They have a policy that precludes attorneys that are pursuing active litigation against the company from attending events at their venues until that litigation has been resolved. And they also claim that all the impacted attorneys at her firm were notified not once, but twice. One of the named partners at Conlin's firm said that he plans to challenge that company's liquor license. Maybe it's retaliatory, but he says it's on the ground that it requires the company to admit members of the public unless they're disruptive or constitute a security threat. And Madison Square Garden Entertainment's response is it complies with all applicable laws, including New York liquor laws. So they don't seem too concerned about that. There have been other recent cases that in, in New York specifically involving a similar fact pattern, including the case of a lawyer whose season tickets to New York to New York Knicks games were revoked because of a suit against Madison Square Garden on behalf of ticket resellers. In that lawsuit, a judge ruled in November that the New York civil rights law requires venues to allow entry to non-sporting events to anyone 21 or older who's behaving appropriately and holding a ticket. Madison Square Garden can refuse to sell tickets and it can revoke tickets up until the time that they are presented at the door. And after that decision, they sent lawyers to lawyers that are involved in any lawsuits against it, saying that the tickets that they obtained are revoked. And the company is appealing the decision. So, Rich, this one is really interesting. It's it's one that I think, you know, is going to have another chapter to it, at least. Um, but um, apparently facial recognition has many uses in many places. I mean, a couple of factors in play here. Yeah, you mentioned that cases uh, on appeal. It was held to be only now applicable to that one lawyer, that one plaintiff. I mean, I think as a as a rule of law, generally, um, you don't have a civil right to attend a Knicks game or a, or a Rockette show, right? I mean, uh, MSG is a privately, you know, is a company that owns Madison Square Garden. They are a owner of this business and they are technically allowed to deny entry to anyone they feel like, unless there's some discrimination involved, right? So that wasn't the case here. Um, 
you know, James Dolan is the owner of MSG. He's the owner of the Knicks. He's had famously lots of run-ins with uh, lots of patrons who have booed him. You know, he's kicked out uh, fans who have booed him. And there's lots of reasons to boo James Dolan over the years. He's also famously had some run-ins with uh, former Nick and former Bull, as a matter of fact, Charles Oakley. That's uh, raised a lot of attention. So, uh, you know, th- there's that element here, too. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, the, 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 the law firm at least purportedly had notice of this. And from the uh, MSG perspective, she went there anyway. So who knows? But Nigel, what are your what are your thoughts on uh, on facial recognition being used in this this respect? I, I I don't like it. I don't agree with it at all. I think it's it's purely above the line. You know, the litigation is pending. Person's behaving appropriately. For myself, you know, I, I did a lot of defense work for a lot of venues here around my state, and then I switched and started doing plaintiffs work against them. So. If they had something similar, I, I wouldn't be able to go into any movie theater, any national grocery store chain, so many local like restaurants. Um, I, I, I definitely don't like it. I think it's it's pushing the pail too far. Joe, is this appropriate use of technology in your opinion? Um, no, uh, but uh, but I mean, it, it's technology that they have. I uh, unlike some states, obviously, I think Illinois being one has has rules against facial recognition being used for certain processes. I don't think New York does. Uh, It is worth saying that a judge has already written that this is, quote, the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Um, So this is the judges don't like this. This is a horrible practice if you're trying to um, litigate in the state. Uh, but it's something Dolan keeps wanting to do. I think the liquor license argument is the best argument people have raised against really getting at the Dolan, uh, the Dolan policy. But it's also what's worth What's worth remembering is that the original excuse for this policy, when they first started doing this against a law, a law firm that was litigating against them, was a law firm that had a shareholder suit against them, and they they're completely uh, not not particularly compelling excuse was, oh, we need to prevent these lawyers from getting in and having you know behind our back contact with. MSG employees. Uh, don't know why the people working the hot dog concession would have had anything to say about the shareholder suit, but whatever. Uh, but that was at least the original excuse. Now we're talking about a lawyer who's at a firm that's suing a restaurant that has some that, that has where MSG has a stake in it. Even their original reason for this policy doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, it's just that Dolan is petty. <laughs> All right, let's get to some of the more hard-hitting, serious topics like mascot talk. Rich, how are we feeling about the Washington Commander's new spokespig, Major Tutty? Wait, Joe, you can't just let that transition go. Uh, go try again, because you just we just ended <laughs> off a story about a owner of a sports team that's hated. And we're going to the, the, the Commanders, and come on. I'm, I'm waiting for a Joe transition of Joe Segler. <laughs> Man, right, I'll, sorry. Do it, I'll do it for you. Yeah, okay. Because apparently I, I can't get it up to your standards. So by all means, just go ahead and do it on your own. Speaking of hated sports owners, we're talking about Dan Snyder, right? So can the commanders do anything right is the question here. Uh, the commanders have been, let's see, um, investigated by Congress. They've been accused of uh, mistreatment by uh, the D.C. Uh, prosecutors. Now they are accused at least will be accused in a lawsuit of violating some intellectual properties for, for some intellectual property of some former players. Um, so they introduced Major Tutty. They had, I guess, asked the fans if they preferred a dog or a hog. And the hog won. So they uh, they trotted out this new mascot, which is a pig 
a hog in a uh, commander's outfit and a uh, uh, a soldier's outfit. And quickly, we heard from some owners of a trademark involving the famous hogs, right? Back in the 80s, anyone who's followed uh, the NFL for a while knows that famously, I think it was Joe Bugle, who was the offensive line coach, called the Redskins uh, offensive linemen of the 80s. I think it was the 83 team. Uh, the Hogs, because they were big and nasty and dirty and, and disgusting. And, you know, that nickname stuck. And for years, we would see fans dressed as pigs, wearing snouts and all sorts of things. Well, fast forward to now, um, these former linemen and also John Riggins, speaking of the Supreme Court, who had a famous Supreme Court run-in with Sandra Day O'Connor at a party, um, have claimed that they own the right to use the Hogs. The commanders... I've said, of course, this is part of our legacy, our history. What's interesting, Tina, and this is obviously in your wheelhouse as an intellectual property, is does there, if you believe that the Washington Football Club owns this IP, does the fact that that was the Redskins and this is the Commanders, does that change that argument? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, based on what I know, and you've alluded to this before, Rich, this is very fact specific, right? I mean, based on what I know, I don't think it matters that they've changed from the Redskins to the Commanders because the the identity that we're talking about, the branding, if you will, that we're talking about doesn't seem to be really dependent on the team having been called the, the Redskins before. It seems to actually have existed independently of that. And you know, I, I find it an interesting argument that the former players who were sort of referred to with this nomenclature, if you will, are claiming to have some rights when to me, based on what I know, it's derivative of the team itself and not of these folks individually uh, apart from their from their identity on the team. So, I, I mean, while I think it's a clever argument, I'm not convinced it's one that at the end of the day isn't it's, it's going to carry the weight it needs to carry. So that's my personal opinion. Well, Joe, O-Line Entertainment, the entity that uh, is uh, made up of these former offensive linemen and John Riggins and, and a tight end, they, in fact, filed for trademarks on hogs and original hogs last summer. And the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is expected to deliver on that in the coming weeks. So, you know, it's not officially been granted, but certainly, I mean, when I think of the Hogs, I think of those players, but you also think of the team. So it, it is a tough one, I think. Yeah, well, and you think of that. And at this point, I actually would wonder if this has become somewhat generic. Uh, I, when I'm watching game day or something like that uh, every week, I'm hearing them explain the some of random offensive line. It's like, look at those hog go like that. That's a phrase that has become part of being a power run offensive line sort of system. Uh, these folks have never tried to stop anyone else from calling players hogs since then uh, until just now. So it seems a little uh, questionable that they've actually been trying to use this uh, trademark in the in a commercial space. Uh, other than to kind of force Dan Snyder's hand. Uh, I don't think I haven't seen it before now. And I and I think that uh, everybody kind of does this. And I don't know what the patent trademark office is going to do, but I'd be surprised if they give kind of a broad of uh, any kind of sweeping trademark here. Uh, maybe some very limited thing, but I don't think they're going to say that 
you can't call offensive linemen hogs or anything. Well, and I, I, you know, to your point, Joe, I think that even if the trademark office allows this application to go through, you know, the next step of the process is to give the opportunity to other parties to object to that application. And so I fully expect that we're going to see objections to, to the filing. Nigel, as a trial lawyer, you're someone who makes his living on telling stories to juries. How easy of a, how much of a layup do you think this would be if this got to a jury? You know, we've got Dan Snyder who for years profited on, you know, the uh, on, on a name that was offensive to a large group of minorities. He has been uh, under investigation by Congress. He's been accused by dozens of former employees of all sorts of mis, uh, you know, misconduct, including sexual, uh, including tolerating a environment of sexual harassment. Um, he's probably the most reviled man easily in the NFL. How much do you think it would be easy to craft a story to a jury, adding all of that to the mix with this alleged trademark infraction? Oh, I think jury selection in that trial would be very, very interesting, right? To try to find people who don't have any bias against him. But I think that that's a line, like uh, Tina said, is easily drawn here. You know, I I find it interesting that they filed their patents just last year, which is around the time that the team was doing the same thing with the same mascot. So I, I don't know. I don't, I think it would be a very interesting jury selection. I'd love to watch it. Maybe pick the dog next time, Joe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm hoping Ben Anderson, our audio producer, can maybe include the guitar riff of the, the jackass segue right now. That, that'd probably be the perfect segue, hopefully up to Rich's standards. But uh, I'm a big fan of Johnny Knoxville and the jackass saga. But apparently this prank seems to have gone just a little bit too far, Rich. Johnny Knoxville, of course, known for his elaborate pranks uh, for what now, probably 20 years or so in jackass uh, multiple TV series, movies. The movie uh, reboot did well, and they're talking, you know, he's bringing it back. So the one prank, according to this uh, complaint, uh, went wrong in that he hired a task rabbit. He hired a handyman to come over and fix a dimmer switch in his house. And uh, he the prank was that the dimmer switch didn't work and, uh, among other things, uh, made this girl's pony go on life support. Basically, he says that in within minutes of starting his work, this handyman, the lamp went out, a girl screamed. She was like 10 years old. Uh, she was an actor. He didn't know that. And she accused this handyman of killing her horse, her pony, because it was on life support when the power went out. At one point, the allegation goes, uh, he was led, this handyman, the plaintiff was led into a room where there appeared to be an actual pony. Um, he also saw his, uh, car getting towed, um, and this, uh, resulted in him suffering some PTSD and filing a lawsuit. He said that, uh, I guess one of the allegations also was that, uh, there was a bag of white powder that was cocaine in the car. Anyway, he filed a lawsuit alleging that he's suffering from, uh, stress and trauma as a result of it and seeking damages. Tina, we've covered some interesting lawsuits. This seems to be another one in the long line of strange ones, but uh, but what are your thoughts on it? Well, you know, I kind of understand that this guy was not a willing participant, right? And so you sort of pick your people and if they're willing participants, great. If they're not, they're not. But the whole notion of PTSD triggered by these events, I just find really rather crazy. Yeah, I mean, uh, Joe, to me, the whole case falls apart when you are 
supposed to believe that this guy was traumatized from seeing a horse connected to life support. That's where that would probably tell me initially that this is a prank. I, I mean, there, there is something to be said for that, but I mean, he was, he was told he killed a pony uh, with all of the um, inevitable lawsuits and financial ruin that could have come with somebody suing him over murdering an animal. Uh, like I, I do see how, you can think that this was reckless uh, with kind of a reckless disregard to his emotions. I don't love these sorts of suits, but uh, man, this one, this one really does push like the, the key to what makes jackass so good is that they're most of the time injuring themselves, uh, mm. which means that they get to avoid this sort of problem. Uh, but when you start going into pranking other people, it, you, you run a risk. Uh, I, do I think it is a viable claim? Probably not, but oh, it, it, it's going to be unpleasant enough that I think that some degree of settlement is probably necessary here. That's that's kind of my takeaway on it. Nigel, usually I thought you get a release from the participant before you air this, but he's actually alleging that he suffered the emotional distress, not just because, not, not even because it was aired, but because of the actual event. Tina and Rich, come on, guys. They got a child actor to cry for her dead pony. <laughs> Pay up, right? I think that's must have been convincing. (laughs) That's the part when I'm like, oh, you actually got a little girl to come in and she probably they said she's an actor. Right. So she probably put on a performance. But when you talk about just thinking about it to me, almost I don't want to say common sense, but almost a horse life support. The next thing you've got cocaine in your car. Like I feel for me personally, I might have in the back of my mind been like, okay, come on now. This this is getting a little crazy. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. But in the moment, in the moment, guys, I got to say, I, I have a daughter. And if she came out crying because something happened, it would be so hard not to believe her. Joe, what's the greatest? Got daughter, Joe. Rich, you've got a daughter. What if uh, what if Emma came out and started crying over her pony? My daughter is uh, is inoculated. So my, you know, April, <laughs> April Fool's is a big day for us. That's like our. Super Bowl. So for years, I've taken, you know, just bigger and bigger pranks to, to a whole new level. The, the greatest was when she was about, she must have been seven years old, Emma. She's now, you know, 17. Uh, I, uh, you know, she would love when we would get Amazon packages like anyone else. So, and just don't call child services on me, but I actually went to the butcher and I got a pig's head, a severed pig's head. And I put the pig's head in the box and I wrapped it up. Like a, I know you're all looking at me. Uh, and she opened it, and instead of the, you know, Barbie dream uh, uh, set, she got a pig's head. So after that, you know, it's all downhill, really, for for pranks. Yeah, pretty soon that's going to be a topic here on the legal grab bag about your daughter suing for emotional trauma. Statue of limitations, Joe. Like we did something along those lines in college as a prank, and it's nice to know that you're you're doing that. Remember, all of a sudden. Uh, I'm at a I'm at a college party and I, I thought I heard something in the bathroom and nothing's in there. The the shower curtains closed. I open it up and there's a cow tongue just mm. in the bathtub. And somebody had the prank to just buy a cow tongue, throw it in there and just wait and see who were to find it. And it happened to be me. And I, I don't know if I was. Uh, legally traumatized by it, but uh, the the fact that you're pulling the same prank on your daughter is uh, quite quite enlightening, there, Fred. Emotional distress, Joe. Emotional distress. Well, 
What a way to end our legal grab bag and the legal face-off podcast this week. A happy new year to everyone involved. Another big thanks to Nigel and Joe for joining us here. Big thanks to our earlier guests as well, Dr. Adam Feldman, Adam, uh, Amanda Vinicky, and Justin Danilovitz. Uh, thank you for our producers, Yvonne Barbosa and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face-Off podcast. Do us a favor as well and give us five stars. For Tina Martini, Rich Lenkoff, and all the childhood trauma that you have along with you, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a few weeks here on the Legal Face-Off podcast. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.